1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com Real Noom user compensated to provide their story In four weeks the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week Individual results may vary Hey fellow time travellers It's great to have you with me again Uh, As always before this week's episode I'll just say thanks A great big thanks to the people who show their support for this podcast By subscribing to my patreon.com site So a huge thank you to everyone who's, who's signed up for that uh, if you're not a member yet and you'd like to join the family, and it is a family, uh, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, part with some cash, join up. Uh, you get weekly vodcasts. as a QA that Paul and I have started doing because we like it. Anyway, it'd be great to have you with me as part of that, that family. Okay, now it's time to get back to the history of the world, so strap yourselves into the time machine. Recorder, microphone and action. and they just said, laugh while the wheel turns around because wherever you are now, it's going to change. It's, it might change for the worse, it might change for the better, but you might as well laugh. The stately march of history flows with rhymes, rhythms, and repeating patterns. Throughout time, historians have watched and recorded its cadences and shapes. Caught up in the whirlwind of an expanding superpower, A Greek historian gave political evolution its clearest definition. Chaos, a wise king, tyranny, aristocracy, oligarchy, democracy, mob rule, a charismatic demagogue, and then all the way back to the beginning again. The wheel of history keeps turning. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world.
0: Hi Neil. In the last episode you took us to meet the man who changed the world. Where are we this week?
1: Morning Paul. Yes, whatever your race, religion or politics, uh, it's hard to dispute the profound influence Jesus had on shaping the world we live in. But this week, religion is more in the background as political machinations take centre stage. In the second century BC, the formidable superpower of its time, the Republic of Rome, is sweeping across Europe, Africa and Asia as we set off to meet a brilliant historian who was caught up in the whirlwind. Today, we're back in ancient Greece, ancient Roman territory. There's just no getting away from how much of an impact on the story of the world that Mediterranean territory has had and continues to have, really. Um, there's something that I, I keep saying, I repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, and it's a, it's a quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. Although I don't think, there's not 100% consensus on who actually said it, but it's words to the effect that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And that goes around and around in my head, just because it seems absolutely perfect to me. a repetition is something very specific happening more than once, but there's more like, you know, recurring cadences and phrases, you know, much like you get in birdsong or music. That's I think that is more uh, accurately descriptive of, of the passage of time. And I think once you take on that, that idea, then you can also appreciate that a rhythm can be fast, it can be up-tempo or it, or it can be slow. And I would say that, if history has a rhythm, then it's a long, slow, ponderous, languid rhythm. I think that's fair to say. It, it's, it's bound up a little bit with what Fernand Braudel of the Annals French History School said about, um, you know, history is deep, a great depth of water. Our lives, the things we notice are like frothy bubbles on the top of the, of the ocean. And then there are the waves, and that's like the the lifetimes of, of, of empires. But it's when you get down into the deep water, down where it's dark, you know, th- th- three miles down, that there are there are movements down there that are beyond. We don't notice them on the surface. And likewise, there are there are movements to history that are so drawn out over such an expanse that we don't that we don't, you know, we're, we're we're flies on on the back of the great horse of time you know we're inconsequential to it and sometimes in, in the in the story of the world you know we do we do talk about it and it's a, it's a history of it's a it's a story of moments and you know for example we just recently talked about caesar crossing the rubicon and and in that you're changing everything forever but he's also he's also riding on top of of, of bigger waves but you know Caesar changed changed Rome from a republic to an empire. And, you know it changed everything. But the story of the republic and the story of the empire spread over you know periods of time that are beyond lifetimes.
0: Yeah, when you look back at that time, it's a hundred, two hundred years. That doesn't seem long in the history books, but in our time.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it takes you back to the. Takes you back to, you know, the period between the First World War and the Second World War. You know, it's back into the realms of, you know, Wall Street crash, 1929 and all of that. There's a fun thing you do where uh, you pay attention to what age you are and you subtract it. You subtract that number from your year of birth. And, and, and you can see how far back your, just your own lifetime would, would take you if, if it went the other way. I was born in 1967 and I'm 55. So when you it it, it takes you quite a leap back. Uh, I think when we because we're uh, we're preoccupied with time moving forward, moment by moment, day by day. Uh, you, you sometimes don't realise how much ground you've covered.
0: So you would be in the First World War, would
1: you? Ah, <laughs> it goes. That's how. That's the reach. That's that's where it, That's where it goes. So, you know, to, to pick up the, the love letter to the, to the world, the story of the world in moments, um, I'll read you a quote from today's character. Uh, I'll give you the quote first. All historians have insisted that the soundest education and training for political activity is the study of history and that the surest and indeed the only way to learn how to bear bravely the vicissitudes of fortune is to recall the disasters of others. The quotes from a Greek historian and writer called polybius but before i get to right the disasters of others paying attention to the disasters of others it's inexcusable really not to do it you know if you don't if you don't bother to learn from disasters that other people experience, then what are you doing with your time and you can feel disaster i can feel disaster looming all around i mean maybe i'm just unduly pessimistic but i i, I just feel storm clouds everywhere um, you know douglas murray writer and commentator, you know, he has talked about the strange death of Europe. And when you look at Europe, it does seem to be dying. It does seem to be dying from a thousand self-inflicted wounds at the moment. And uh, you Take from Europe whatever you want, you, the European Union, the continent, uh, the way of life that has been European, it's falling apart. The United States of America you know they're they're under the thrall of a of a senile old man, and the administration under him, which to look at it from the outside seems hell bent on nothing less than the destruction of America. So disa- disasters looming all about us. In terms of the chronology, it's worth pointing out that Polybius comes significantly before Caesar. And Polybius, when he looked at history, we talked already about a rhythm. He decided that if history had a shape, it was a circle rather than a line. Rather than this one thing follows another straight like he imagined things going round and round in circles. And that's really the theme of what we're talking about today. Really, even more than a circle, what he visualised was a rotating wheel, a wheel kind of ticking round, wheel of fortune, keeping on going round. He was born, as far as anyone can tell, because he's far enough back that it becomes a little bit vague exactly when he was born, but it seems to have been around 200 years before the birth of Christ, in a Greek city of the time with a what sounds like a very modern name. He was born in Megalopolis, which, you know, it reeks of the future, really. It just means big city. Uh, and it was in a, a region of, of Greece called Arcadia. Now, Polybius is credited with the best description of history being a a spinning wheel but he didn't necessarily originate that thought out of nowhere he he was drawing already on an understanding by others before him so plato and then aristotle uh, had noticed something of a recurring pattern around the way people govern themselves or are governed by others you know it doesn't keep changing it's a handful of ways of doing it that just keep on Repeating and repeating and repeating in this cyclical fashion, but but Polybius took the idea and seemed to give it its most eloquent or, or easily comprehensible description. It's a theory called anacyclosis, anacyclosis, which it's been translated various ways. It's something like uh, the cycle of political revolutions. You know, so they fo- they follow one another in this in this recurrent pattern. Polybius was um, he was he was a posh boy, born into an influential family, political family in in Greek society, but he was also born into a period of great change. Now he he was a historian, uh, and you could say that if you're going to be a historian, you might want to live in a time of great change because it gives you plenty to write about, uh, you know, rather than living in some kind of stability. Uh, you know, so he certainly had that. So he was born into privilege and. He was also born into a time when the world was in flux. He wrote dozens of books, so it provides you know priceless coverage of his time. And the period he was chronicling was part of the rise of the Republic, the Roman Republic, to the point where it was a superpower of the ancient world. He lived through that period when Rome was swallowing whole the Greek world of before, uh, rising to supplant and be greater than anything that the Greek world ever was in terms of a dominant, dominating position. Uh, and so the Roman Republic by Polybius's time was, was the big shadow over the Mediterranean world and indeed beyond. Um, so the, the, the Romans finished crushing the Greeks, you know, putting them under their their heel. <laughs> they, they, they had a, a final victory over King Perseus of Macedonia at the Battle of uh, Pydna in 168 BC, um, and Polybius was among a thousand hostages that were taken by Rome back to Italy, back to Rome. Uh, they were the thousand. They were identified as as leaders of. Of, of opposition to Rome. Troublemakers, as far as Rome was concerned, uh, from the, the Achaean part of, uh, of, of the Greek world. So the, the, these thousand, this, this representative sample, were taken away, taken back to, taken back to Italy. They were, they were tr- well treated in the main. Uh, Polybius was given into the family of a legendary general and consul, Escipio. Uh, you know, a, a very successful military figure uh, and also consul. Remember, that's one of the two kind of uh, figures that, are, uh, that were elected for a year and annually to be the kind of figureheads of, of part of what was governing the Romans. Uh, and so by by landing in amongst the family of Scipio, uh, Polybius was able to witness and take part in uh, Roman high society. Was he like a slave? no. No, no, he wasn't. He was, he was just, he was kind of a ward of the family. He wasn't free to come and go. He was held as a captive. But no, he wasn't wasn't a slave. He wasn't. He wasn't ill-treated. And so, because he was able to see people like Scipio and others in operation, he saw, for example, the defeat of Hannibal. You know, Hannibal that crossed the Alps with his with his elephants and all the rest of it. So he, he saw how the Romans got things done, and he wrote about it. He was forensic. He had an absolutely sort of anally retentive eye for detail, a slave to detail. So if it's facts and data that you're after, uh, Polybius is your man. It's just that his writing's as dry as dust. Um, And it was in volume six of a set known to us as The Histories uh, that he wrote about anacyclosis in the way that is Remembered, and it's this is really the the heart of the matter in many ways. The way he summed up the the cycle of political revolution, the way Polybius saw it, you, out of chaos, right? Let's say, let's say there's a kind of a, a cloud of chaos, a cloud with you know rumblings of thunder and lightning flashes. Out of that emerges a good king, uh, good in every way, uh, benevolent, honest. Determined to give his people the best life possible, everything that good king means to you. So this is monarchy, pure, unadulterated, well-meaning, but in that way of dynasties, his son and his sons become less and less entitled really or they feel they might feel more entitled but their qualities as characters tend to, to d- diminish as time goes on you know the, the the original good king had to had to achieve that for himself by his character and by his ability whereas his sons his descendants just get it because grandpa had it and so on down the line and and it, inevitably the their quality of leadership deteriorates and so after monarchy comes tyranny the tyranny of undeserving heirs There's always powerful men around with a close eye on what the king is doing, for good or ill. And eventually there's a generation of those who take over. They depose the king and take command for themselves. Now, this is the aristocracy. And to begin with, the rule of the aristocracy can be as good, or almost as good, not quite as good, but the first iteration of aristocracy, it's okay, because you know good decisions being made by people of ability. But then the process continues, the wheel keeps turning. And the, the they are succeeded by their descendants, their sons and daughters, and it, it, as as it goes on, they become less and less uh, suitable, less and less deserving of the power. So that corrupts into oligarchy. You know, everyone talks about the you know the the, the former Soviet Union being taken over by oligarchs. It's the rule of rich men, powerful men they 're lousy to live under they just want everything for themselves, and the rest of the population just get you know scraps or nothing at all and the, eventually the people overthrow them and create the democracy so you 've got monarchy, then tyranny, then aristocracy, then oligarchy, and then democracy and the first iteration of the of the democracy is good because the people who create it are deserve it. They've taken it for themselves. They have seized power on behalf of one another. But that decays as well. We're seeing that now. Eventually, everyone takes democracy for granted and, it, and it's, it's used and exploited by undeserving figures until eventually democracy itself is corrupt, rotten. Rotten from, from inside out. So the people, the, the mass of the population, are dissatisfied with democracy. They don't like it anymore. They they think it's had its day. And in that febrile atmosphere rises a demagogue. The demagogue is a charismatic, self-made figure who just kind of rises up, just stands up and uh, emerges. Bright, shining, rich, good looking maybe, (laughs) good teeth and, and a good talker and promises that under him everything will be cushy. And the chaos from which the demagogue emerges is the rule of the mob. The ochlocracy, as Polybius would describe it. O-C-H, ochlocracy. And it, that, it, so the, the people, it's, it's always about the people. The, the mass of the population is always the mass of the population. You know, Whether they're ruled by a king or by aristocrats or by tyrants or, 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 or each other. It's always about the people. And so the, the demagogue arises from chaos. So by the time the demagogue arises, the chaos is already back. And I would say that's where we are now. You know, we're seeing demagogic figures arising in a chaotic situation.
0: So as the democracy disintegrates a bit, you have, m- have more rule. rule.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it's difficult to tell. It's like that, at what point when you're taking, if you have a pile of sand and you take it apart, with a pair of tweezers, one grain of sand at a time. It's a big philosophical question. At what point what had been a pile of sand is not a pile anymore? It's just some grains of sand. The removal of which grain of sand makes that happen? So it's hard to tell at what point the decay of the democracy becomes the ochlocracy and shifts from the rule of the people to the rule of the mob. But it's, a hard, one. it's hard to pinpoint exactly when that happens. But it seems to have happened now. Now, according to Polybius, by this point, by the, by the time of the rule of the mob and the demagogue, you're, you're back up, you know, you're at 10 to 12, 5 to 12. And if what you get then, out of that chaos, is the emergence of the good king. That's midnight. Starts again. Now, however long it takes, you've gone through that whole cycle, and out of that chaos of the demagogue and the rule of the mob, emerges a good king. You call him. King. It's just a word, a leader, a, f- a, f- a single figure who leads the way to the, to the sunlit uplands. And off we go again. Right, so that's anacyclosis as described by Polybius.
0: So in the present day, we're still locked into this cycle. How does it work?
1: If you picture a clock face, an analogue, <laughs> not a digital, an analogue clock face with, it, with the hands going round, I would say, I would say that we're approaching midnight, that the that the, 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 the hands have gone all the way round, all bar a few minutes. I think we're almost back to the beginning of, it's another day, if you like, about to start. At the moment? Right now. I think we're nearly there. I think it's somewhere between five to midnight and midnight. It, it might be even closer than that. Um, but we're, we're definitely in that territory after five to twelve. Maybe it's one minute to twelve. I think it's all about to come full circle. We've reached a point now where democracy, which is, which is the way in the, of the developed world and, and the West, it's the way we've, we've governed ourselves for a long period of time. But it's undeniable, I think, that, that, that democracy itself is in large part despised now by the demos, which is to say, the people. People just treat it with contempt. They don't take part in it. They don't. They don't in the, in the large part, they don't seem to care whether it's there or not. They talk vaguely about, you know, living in democratic societies, but less and less is done to to preserve the essential building blocks of what a democracy even is. Um, so you know, so that, that's where we are. You could say that's our moment at the moment. Is we're, we're, I think we're on the we're teetering on the abyss of almost unimaginable change. And according to the way Polybius would have described it, everything's about to end, in the same way that a day ends at midnight. It's about to start. The two things happen simultaneously, the ending and the beginning. I think that's where we are. Now, when it comes to the moment that matters, you know, this is a succession of moments in this this love letter to the world. And I suppose the moment here really is is when polybius realized in in thinking about anacyclosis that the the best of times was when there was a combination of monarchy aristocracy and democracy in that spinning wheel of 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 Cyclosis, what was the never perfect but what was the the next best thing for the mass of the population was a a, a leadership or a rule or a, or a government that combined monarchy aristocracy and Democracy, and in the republic, in the flowering of the Roman Republic, he wrote that it was all there, because you had the consuls, the the two figures, they provide the kind of royal gloss, you know, for a population that wants a royal family sort of thing, you know, figureheads. The, then the consul provide the consuls provided that,
0: and they're only and they're only there for a year.
1: Yeah, they just cycle out. So you've got, at any given moment, you have the consuls that that, that provide that royal sheen. Underneath them, you've got the aristocracy in the form of the Senate, the senators. And also in the mix, you've got Congress, which is the people. So that's kind of the, the demos being looked after at the same time people have looked on at Polybius and said that because of his circumstances he was a captive of of Scipio he was, a, he was a hostage, that he was a shill a stooge and that he was talking up the Romans in a way that he would not otherwise have done, You know, he was a suck up that's what the critics say about him some of the critics say about him and well maybe he was, maybe he wasn't but he was also able to uh, intervene on behalf of, of the people for example in the 140s Corinth, which was a city-state, rebelled against Rome. And uh, it might well have just been crushed in the same way that the Romans crushed Carthage. But Polybius uh, intervened on behalf of Corinth, and Corinth was treated more leniently. So there's an argument for saying that, well, whether or not he was a stooge and a shill, he was able to help. His writings dry and dull as they are in terms of their prose style they've lasted forever Niccolo Machiavelli who wrote The Prince which is still used to this day as a, as a masterwork of of statecraft he, before he wrote The Prince Machiavelli read Polybius and, and incorporated some of that wisdom into his idea of st- statecraft and the founding fathers of the United States of America they were aware of Polybius and Anacyclosis. And that's why they structured the government the way they did, because they tried to bring together monarchy, aristocracy and democracy in the form of the president, You know, who's only there for a certain period of time, but he's a, he's a bit like a stand-in for a king. You've got the, the Senate and the Congress. That, and they, that was a, they did that deliberately uh, because they were taking the wisdom of Polybius that this, this combination of the three might protect a people from tyranny. I think about Polybius a lot. I think that idea of his spinning wheel from good king through through decay and then, you know, to the return to something good is very instructive. For people that think that history doesn't repeat but it rhymes, the spinning wheel is a useful uh, image to bear in mind. F- funny enough, there's a, there's a, a Yiddish saying that has always stuck with me. I don't even honestly remember where I read it, but it expresses the same notion. The translation from the Yiddish is laugh while the wheel turns round. That's that idea that whatever you're caught up in, you know, the travails of the Jewish people, you know, <laughs> you don't need me to describe that again. We just looked at Primo Levi, the things that have happened to the Jewish people. Out of it came this accepting mindset that I suppose you basically say shit happens, and they just said laugh while the wheel turns around, because wherever you are now, it's going to change. It might change for the worse, it might change for the better, but you might as well laugh. Barbarians at the gates and usurpers within, it's the time of the Tetrarchy, the rule of four. Far from Rome, in the city of York, the next emperor is proclaimed. Visions, crosses and a loyal army. Power shifts eastward to Constantinople. Christianity is accepted and the world turns on its axis. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site, It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.